Episode 124 Above Ground Podcast, A Little Bit Stronger with Dr. Michelle Finnerin, PhD. Disclaimer, the hosts of this podcast, Timothy Patrick and Will Foley, are by no means medical professionals. However, having lived experience with mental illness themselves, they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis. By sharing their stories, they hope to create connection. By creating connection, they hope to help you find your purpose. And through purpose, we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Are you ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit? Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to Above Ground Podcast. Above Ground Podcast, because you can't serve below. We are joined by Dr. Michelle A. Finneran, PhD, who is a clinical psychotherapist in Florida who is in private practice, and she has written a new book entitled Surviving Domestic Abuse, Formal and Informal Support and Services. Dr. Michelle, thank you very much for joining the two of us. Um, I figured we would just get right into it because it kind of correlates the whole thing. Sure. Why are were you called to do the work you do, and what keeps you doing it? I've always been. I've always had a very uh, significant interest in mental health and mental health counseling from a very very young age. the The preface for the book is when I was uh, about two th- in the early two thousands. I worked in um, a local jail. And with that local jail, I was working with incarcerated female um, inmates. And with that being said, um, I got to really know them on a very personal level. And what I was beginning to realize and uncovered that these um, inmates were actually um, victimized and victims of domestic abuse, which actually absolutely blew my mind. So I was like kind of floored. I was kind of floored by how, what, what, what are we doing here? These are women who are victims and they're in jail. Um, so I, I started questioning the system in general and the flawed system in general. And I began um, my dissertation by looking at each system and how the system um, is effective or ineffective in helping victims um, abolish their abusive relationships. So I looked at law enforcement agencies and um, professionals. I looked at mental health counseling, judicial systems. I looked at all different types of systems, formally, formal, which is the professionals, and then informal, which is the personal. So it kind of just really shocked me that I was talking to incarcerated women that were actually victims of domestic violence. So that really kind of, I was confused a lot of the time as to what was happening here. So it just brought a a sense that I I talked to my dissertation chair. I go, we have a really serious issue here. You know, I mean, we have a serious problem here that I didn't, you don't really know until you are exposed to the system, um, what that is like. So it's, it is a huge problem. I actually, I'm really interested to get the conversation sort of started because this is a mental health podcast and yes. you, and you have a, and you, you, one of your specialties is mood disorders and things like that. And I'm, I'm wondering what, where the correlation between 
a mental health disorder, a diagnosis and domestic abuse kind of come together. Is there, are there studies? I'm, I, I feel like you have a sociology background because there's a lot of sociology work done in a lot yeah. of this data gathering. So, right. Um, yes, there is uh, people that are victims or survivors of domestic abuse there. They experience a lot of mental health um, diagnosis is a disorder, symptoms, symptomology, and signs. So it's because of the abuse that they've endured, the PTSD, the diagnosable, the depression, the anxiety, um, the bipolar, um, the, you know, just the, these are just some of the, some of the diagnoses that are related to victims who've experienced this type of abuse. And there's also um, a, a syndrome that I talked about in the book called the Stockholm syndrome, which people, it's not a diagnosable disorder, but it is something that is very noted in literature of how the parallels between the Stockholm syndrome and um, domestic violence victims parallel each other and correlate with each other. So there is a lot of overlap with domestic violence victim survivors and their own mental health, just because it's been compromised in so many levels. I know that there's been a lot of studies done on, you know, different abuse, like sexual abuse and the, and the traumatic things that have happened. Is there a generational trauma that we see correlated through say abusers and victims and is there any, is there anything, I mean, anybody can be an abuser, I suppose. Any, well, yeah, not suppose anybody can be an abuser and anybody can be a victim. So it, right. it's kind of, is there any correlations as to what maybe leads an abuser to be an abuser, generational trauma, like where is the, there's got to be crossovers in there? And- yes. Yes. A lot of it is um, there's a, there's a genetic component uh, to this a lot of the time. And a lot of the time abusers learn how to be abusers through their either family of origin or their dysfunctional intimate partner relationships. I, I have a, I, I, in the book, I discussed how victims sometimes become victims. Um, and a lot of it has to do with several components, but the mother daughter relationship with um, victims and survivors is, is highly important. That attachment is highly important. We talked a little bit about that in the book. So I, I'm assuming just, I haven't done the research on it, but I'm assuming just uh, the abuser and their re- relational um, with their parents or father figure or mother figure is pretty significant in terms of if abuser is going to turn out to be a perpetrator or not. Um, so I think that's kind of, it's, it's an interesting correlation with a lot of the victims that I interviewed had an unhealthy attachment with their, to their mothers. So with that unhealthy attachment, um, they sought out intimate partner violence, um, partners that were fed that need for them. Ah, okay. So again, it's, it's about receiving your need or having your needs met in a, in a, in a diabolical way, but it's, it's that twisted part of our, our needs of, of us having to have those connections, regardless of how bad they are. Absolutely. And the need is for, for, for the women, it's not a physical need. It's not like, it's not like tangible things like helping financially or helping moving or helping with babysitting. It's more of an emotional, mental, intimate attachment between mother and daughter that is non-existent um, okay. and therefore and therefore women women who have these unattached 
um, relationships with their mom tend to fall into the trap of seeking that type of uh, attention or attachment to uh, uh, someone who is uh, potentially violent and abusive. Hmm. Wow. Do you think that a lot of that is subconscious? A lot of that is a lot of that is learned. You know, these women that have been exposed uh, have been exposed early in their youth to possible mothers who are victims themselves. Okay. You know, so a lot of it, a lot of it is learned. A lot of it is, I mean, I think people really underestimate the ability um, for when parents actually are active in front of their children. And what happens is modeling takes place as an unspoken type of learning that happens for the child. And I think really parents really underestimate, they don't really have to do a teaching lesson or they don't really have to say very much. It's really what they do that the child picks up on these modeling behaviors and therefore learn for themselves. Um, So it's really, um, uh, people really underestimate the power of modeling between the child and parent dynamic. So if you're basically, if you're shown love in a dysfunctional way, you tend to believe that that that's how you, you deserve to be shown love. Right. And then, then you feel like that's the only way, only way, the only way, because there, there isn't another um, example. You know, when we have your family of origin, we think that is it. You know, we we don't, we're not exposed to other people's family of origin. So it's just, we, we, we believe that to be our truth at a young age, but they, they probably don't realize it, but um, I guess in a way of uh, almost prevention, you know, maybe early um, psychotherapy stuff could help curb some of this. Is that possible? Definitely. I definitely feel like uh, education for the parent um, is going to be really important early on and education and, you know, in, I know school systems are starting to, to do this a little bit more, with everything that's been going on in this society and with the culture, the schools are starting to introduce the importance of mental health and how important it is to um, safeguard your mental health. And I think early intervention, such as parents really getting into the know can really help their child um, to be mentally, have mental, good mental health and well-being. Can we sort of define domestic abuse in the way that we should be defining it. Like, can you give us a, a definition of what it is? And then we can kind of get into what to look for and then maybe some tips as to how to handle it. If you know something, cause we're all about tips and tools on the show and your book is all about support. So I'm yeah. really interested to get some tips out there and stuff. And I kind of want to just see what are the, the definition is. Okay. So it's any type of motion, emotional, mental, physical, um, um, sexual, financial, religious um, abuse that takes place. And these are just a little bit of the spheres that abuse can manifest. Um, there's also, you know, the abuse where you, the, the perpetrator has tendencies to with um, prevent the victim from um, interacting with their loved ones, isolation, withdrawal. Um, there's all types of different segments There's um, in terms of the abuse, but typically it's either sexual, physical, emotional, or mental. And then we have the others that are financial, religious, 
Um, you know, there's also abuse where um, there's also neglect as well that takes place with um, this type of this type of um, uh, uh, abusive interaction. So there's all different types of ways to define it. Um, a person typically, when a person's being ab abused and um, they're victim and they're in it, it's sometimes hard for them to and not discounting victims and not trying to make them feel like they're not knowledgeable. But it's I know when you're in it, I feel like sometimes it's very hard to know that you are in an abusive dynamic. They don't recognize it as being quite abusive. So what happens is they know something is wrong. They just don't know what it may be. So this is where I found out when I did my literature review that uh, a lot of victims really do research what abuse is and they go on forums and groups to um, expose themselves to um, support groups that have similar stories of abuse um, that they can relate to. And they, they begin to realize, oh, wow, now I'm starting to learn. I'm starting to understand um, how this is working and how uh, how similar these stories can, can become. So it's something that is not, it's something that can be very overt. Like it's something that's very like um, visible and tangible, but it's also abusive. Abusiveness can also be covert where it's kind of underlying not as um, not as um, visible, um, and you know, with abuse that takes place, you're, when you are in an intimate partner relationship, you don't typically wake up and you know punch your partner. It's usually a gradual kind of systemic buildup of um, tension building and buildup that takes place um, that happens over time. That happens over time, and it can be very unconscious. And it can be very deliberate. Yeah. I, I, is, is it true that a lot of abuse comes from just that seeking of power, power over someone else or power that wasn't given to the abuser? Is there like a, it's, is there a correlation to searching for like some sort of form of power or some fake power that they think they have? Yeah, there is, there is in, in the research and academic, there is the power and control wheel that we see with uh, with domestic violence. But there's also, you know, the type of perpetrator that is very insecure, hence narcissistic because of, and there's also um, different characteristical traits, but the power and control wheel is a very real and um, researched out model. And if you look, if you Google power and control um, wheel, you it will pop up a, a, the whole visual wheel and, each component in the wheel. Um, so it's very documented and well-researched in the literature with power and control. But also I'm what I've been finding out is that the type of perpetrator that's out there that um, is, is very insecure personally. And because they're insecure, there is some narcissistic tendencies that take place with um, the perpetrator. Um, and they do this because they're insecure, but it comes out as being controlling and vindictive and abusive. But the underlining is that they're very insecure individuals. I actually have a quick question, just kind of a little bit pertaining to that. Just from listening to that, um, if let's say in a, in a, I mean, I'm sure this is going to, everything's individualistic, but 
in a um, if you could take out one situation of of a of a domestic abuse situation, if let's say that that one uh, the spouse you know the abuser recognized it, is it possible to go to therapy early on, catch this stuff, and and I guess learn to heal and and come out like surviving it um, for the for the perpetrator I, for both really. Well, I definitely do not recommend um, a domestic violence couple, like an abusive couple, going to mutual, you know, mutual couples counseling together. Absolutely not, okay. not not okay. okay. So that's not a good idea because then uh, what happens is the power and control begins to be exhibited in the session, and it becomes unsafe for the victim. So that's not advisable. So instead having individual sessions and what I do with my couples counsel counseling to determine if there is abuse going on, I have at least three individual sessions with the, with the spouse and another three individuals with the other spouse. And then I, I try to uncover if there is any form of abuse happening. And if there is, I really, really be careful as to when timing wise to put these people these, these partners together in a session, because the last thing you want to do for a therapeutic session is to make it unsafe. Um, but yes, I, I feel like for, for perpetrators, it's a little bit harder because for perpetrators, they don't write, they don't have the insight. A lot of perpetrators don't have the insight to realize what they're doing is abusive. So okay. you don't have, if you don't have a willingness or a desire to change or recognition that there's a problem, it's very hard to make the shift um, therapeutically. Um, so that's the challenge. And there's a lot of, you know, court systems that, you know, uh, mandate perpetrators to go to anger management. Well, you know, perpetrators don't need anger management they need like better, they need like a better prevention program. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of research out there that, that says that these programs typically don't, don't really work that well. I don't know if they're, um, coming from an anger management model. I don't know what they're doing, but a lot of these uh, batter intervention of programs is not really effective as much as they should be. So that's, that's part of the problem that it's not an anger. This is not an anger issue. This is a, a, this is a, a perpetrator slash abusive um, problem that's going on. So courts really need to get a better understanding of what's really happening here. Yeah, I think the failing of the system, again, it's, it's, it's a system. So they can't, they don't, systems don't see emotions. Systems don't see what's attached to anyone involved in the situation whatsoever. So it's like hard for those situations to say, oh, well, you should go to this anger management course because I don't know. Yeah, that sounds to me more like a, it's, there's a lot more than anger that's going on there for sure. I, it's, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, it's very, very heartening to me to hear that peer support is so important because once again, you proved it by saying that that domestic violence um, victims find a lot in peer support. So it's it's awesome to find out that uh, like our podcast is from the peer perspective, I always call it because it's it's I'm a peer where Tim's a peer. We're all peers. So what questions can we ask as individuals if we suspect something like what are some tools and tips that we can have in our tool belt to have so we can have something else to look out 
out for because we come across a lot of diverse people. So, so um, one of the things is you don't want to ask uh, a perpetrator, uh, excuse me, a victim or a survivor. So let's distinguish between a victim and a survivor. A victim to me is someone who's already in the abusive relationship. A survivor has been out of the abusive relationship for some time. So there's the correlation. One of the, one of the things is you don't want to ask victims or survivors is why didn't you leave? Why don't you leave? Why didn't you leave earlier? Obviously, this is not a helpful question um, because there's so many different variables and components that are not really, it's not a fair question to ask someone who is in a domestic violence situation. So that's, these are questions that you don't typically want to ask victims or survivors that have been in domestic, why didn't you leave earlier? What made you, you know, what made you stay kind of thing? Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very intricate kind of complex um, dynamic that makes them not want to leave. Um, things to look for is, you know, personality with, if you have a, if you have a friend or if you have somebody in your life that you may suspect you, you notice some personality changes, some, some withdrawal, some isolation, some, um, you know, um, not really wanting to invite the friend over with their relationship and, keeping the relationship kind of hidden because the perpetrator might not like their friends or might not want them to be associated with other people. So there's almost a, almost a, like an emotional disconnect, if you will, from friends. And, you know, being friends with somebody who's a domestic violence victim and survivor can, can and has been in literature been challenging for their friends because um, their friends get overwhelmed sometimes with the amount of stories or experiences of abuse that take place. So it's important for if the friend is empty, emotionally empty from hearing the stories that they take some time out for themselves and really caretake for themselves in order to be fueled up um, to get their needs, to get their needs met as well. It's, it's taxing because it's hard. It's, it's a twisted kind of feeling that family members and friends go through when they have a, have a loved one that's going through this is they're angered at the perpetrator. They're angered a little bit at the victim for, for having to stay in the situation and which is, which is not helpful, but there's also a, a there's also fear. There's a, a myriad of emotions that go into the informal supports who who have witnessed and who experienced their loved one going through this type of abuse. Um, so they, there's a lot of, uh, to the point of a, where it gets super frustrating for the informal supports, and then they end up not being helpful um, for their loved ones. So um, there's lots of things to look out for. There's lots of character traits to look out for, um, for the, um, for, for a friend or family who is trying, who is trying to help their loved one through abolishing their um, abusive relationship. Sounds like there's a lot of correlations between coexisting conditions too, like comorbidities Mm -hmm. of mental illness wrapped up in there. And, and it's because we, we hear so many people who who don't have the supports for mental illness. Is there a lot of correlation in those in, 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 is there a lot of parallels with resources for domestic abuse victims and, and mental, is there a correlation between the lack of resources, I should say, there, for domestic abuse and mental illness together? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're, they're becoming more and more viable, these resources, because people now, society is understanding that 
particularly since the pandemic, it's the, the number of uh, uh, domestic abuse violence calls have been totally risen. And uh, a lot of mental health because of the pandemic has been risen three areas in mental health that have really been on the rise. So because of this, and because just of what we've been seeing experientially with society and the things that have gone down, um, such as school shootings, you know, really, really horrendous crimes that take place. Mental health is becoming more of the forefront of talking of talk, and it should be. And, it, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, this kind of thing was very much stigmatized. Mental health was very much stigmatized. Going to a, a psychiatrist or going to a therapist was very looked frowned upon and down upon. And now now people are beginning to realize that if you don't have your mental health, you really don't have anything. Well, so, Right. And we, and I'm sorry to cut you off because you just led into the perfect thing. Cause I, we've been saying this now, we don't, everyone has mental health. We don't all have mental illness and that's where we got to get at. We got to get at mental health, just like we do physical health. Like that's absolutely our primary care doctors can't don't have the time to get to these questions anymore. So, right. no. and I, I, you kind of opened up a whole kind of box Pandora's box for me because you said because you've mentioned a lot of these issues and Tim talks about starting this in the education system young where we have to. And I hear a lot of correlations of the family dynamic that leads to a lot of this. And how do we, if, if you're not, and I, you know what, man, I'm, I'm going to have to own this word, but if you're not woke enough to know that there's an issue, okay. How do you fix an issue? So how can you fix the family dynamic when your dynamic was, was fucked? Pardon my French, but, and then you pass that on because a lot of people come from those dynamics. Absolutely. So, so how do, how do we fix that? Like is, is therapy the issue? Is it, it because again, we're talking about being able to talk about something that we don't want to talk about our emotions mm-hmm. and feelings. So how do we, mm-hmm. how do we get into that? How do so, we start? The, 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 absolutely. I think it's so easy to repeat dysfunctional patterns because they are not just dysfunctional, but they're familiar. That's well, all they're comfortable, know. right? They're, they're comfortable. comfortable. They're, they're comfortable and they're familiar. So that's all. That's what we gravitate to, regardless if it's functional, unhealthy, it does not make a difference where we gravitate to what's comfortable and familiar. Um, it's, it's when it's when you are exposed to something that's dysfunctional or unhealthy and you begin to, there's a couple of things that might happen. One is you separate yourself and realize, I don't like the way this makes me feel. I do not like how I'm feeling from this. And you are able to stop yourself and say, okay, I, and when you are a young person or a teenager or a young adult, and you have this, you're witnessing all this dysfunction, you say to yourself, okay, I, I hate this. I don't like the way I'm feeling from this. I am not going to do this in my family. And therefore you make a conscious choice to reverse the patternistic familiar um, cycle that you've been exposed to. It's a recognition and it's a disliking of how you are feeling based on what you've been exposed to. That's really, really important because even though you're exposed to it and it's, it, it's familiar, if there's not a, a, a distinguish, distinguish, distinguish between what is healthy, familiar, and unhealthy, and a, a discord of not really wanting to repeat patterns and not liking what was done to you in the past, so you're not gonna do it in your future. That's how the patterns are broken. 
instead of repeated. That's how they are broken. When there's a conscious decision, a, a, an awakening, like you said, an awakening, an epiphany almost, if you will, of saying, okay, so I was treated like this as a child. I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't like the way that I, I feel now. When I have children, I'm going to reverse this and do what was not what was done to me. I'm not going to do to my my spouse or my partner or my children. So it's just really, and you have to have, again, insight, acknowledgement. You have to have recognition and you have to be awoken to the fact that there is differences here and not just because you're under your roof is the right way. And it's because just because you're exposed to your family of origin is not, doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way. Exposing yourself to different different people, different therapies, the best form of therapeutic intervention, the most successful is medication management and therapeutic intervention. And like you said, primary doctors are really not suited to give medications for psychiatric uses. It's really as it's the specialist really needs to come in. You would go to your primary doctor to get your shoulder fixed. So it's just kind of like the same thing in a medical within a medical model. You wouldn't go to a primary doctor to treat a psychiatric disorder either. So really specialize the disorder and use a specialized doctor who's trained in that field to provide the support and the help. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, you're welcome. I, I agree. I, I've, I've had that same you know, mindset, outlook, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and it's, it's just good to kind of hear it, hear it come from a professional. It's- yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's very important to, you know, recognize and expose yourself to different and, you know, the support is there, the support, like your, your, your podcast is a form of support. You know, these resources are out there. It's tapping into them. It's really knowing that there are resources out there that you might have to search for and look for. So it's not too far. The resources are becoming more and more viable and more and more available. So don't neglect, don't negate saying that you don't necessarily have to go first off to a therapist if that's not what you feel comfortable doing. You can do your own pulmonary research and your own type of um, listening and viewing. And then maybe if you feel like you, this is something that you can't really manage on your own and maybe need a professional, then you make the decision of whether or not to introduce a network of support, formal supports that can help you. And I think that's really just actually very smart mental health caretaking for. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Smart mental health 101 right here, for sure. <laughs> I, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a piece in the book where you had mentioned about um, there was a, I, I, and forgive me, I don't know the, the actual, actual wording you use, but it was, it was similar to, um, they don't realize there's a problem until it becomes a life-threatening problem. I feel like that is so familiar with the way that we handle mental health and crisis in particular. It's, it's this Western culture where we wait for that crisis to happen and then go, hey, wow, look at this, this is, we need to do something. You know, so what in, in your work and, in, in, you know, learning about this stuff, what is there something that we can do that's more proactive? To- yeah, it absolutely is. Before it becomes an issue, if you're starting to feel 
something, a little bit of something before it becomes a crisis, seek the intervention before it implodes. You know, it's like recognize it's listening to your mental health. It's listening to your body. It's making, it's becoming more attuned with yourself and really listening to yourself a little bit more deeper and a little bit more intimately, which people do not like to do. Um, and that's part of the problem is they do not like to really sit with themselves and listen to themselves because it's uncomfortable. Um, and that's okay. But I feel like getting comfortable with the uncomfortable kind of needs to happen. You know, also, I find that people don't like to do that. I, I, I experimented a couple of times with doing it's very, very challenging. It's really like sitting with yourself, like in darkness with absolutely no stimulation, no phone, no dog, no TV, no radio, no nothing, nothing. Sitting in silence, in dark, alone, just reflecting and thinking. I have to tell you something. It is the most challenging thing to do because we crave those distractions. We crave those stimulations. And so when you, do, when you shut it down, you are literally shutting everything around you down and you are able then to tune in to that inner voice, you're able to tune in and more receptive and open to signs that may be, be experimentally shown to you either on a high level or a universal level, whatever you believe in. So it's really like, I, I did this one time in my life when I was going through a crossroads in my own life, I really didn't know what to do. And so I really had to, I really had to really process it and meditate on it. And for about a month, each night I would come home and sit in darkness for about 30 minutes and really just try to visualize what I could see myself doing. No, no, no one talking to me, not processing it with anybody, not um, talking on the phone with anybody, not having the stimulation, but just in my own mind and having that conversation with myself or the universe or your higher power, whatever you believe in to kind of get the answers that you need. And I did that for about a month. And it just kind of, when I made the actual decision to take a step forward in a uh, uh, thought out risk taking the process and to going into my own business, that's when things, the universe met me halfway. And that's when things really started to unfold for me, but I couldn't do that without that time, specific, uninterrupted, unstimulated time that I needed for myself. So it's people have a very challenging time sitting with themselves. Very, very hard. You've very hard. You've inspired me because I, I, I meditate off and on because it's, it's hard for me to sit. I actually, uh, my family was cool enough to create me a spot outside for Father's Day with all kinds of accruements and statuettes wow. and stuff. Yeah, it's a nice it's place, like it's but, like like a like a sanctuary. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. But I but it's getting cold here where we are because we're up in upstate New York. So, um, and it's I get up early in the morning, but I have the perfect room to sit in darkness, and I've never just tried to sit with no anything around or distract because I always have the cat bugging me or something yeah. going on. So I'm going to have to try that this week now. It's, it's very challenging. You, know, you might want to start off with just like 10 minutes of just like trying to, and you know, re, and your mind is going to take you all different kinds of places, but really just like redirect your mind to what a focal point is. And I, I you know I do this. I, I train myself now that I have learned the mastery of doing this. I train myself to do this 
each and every day of my life now. Uh, in the mornings, I go for an hour and a half meditative walk. It's not a walk to lose weight or to change my um, size of my clothes. It's really the walk in the morning that's done really early in the morning is a walk with myself, no headphones, no telephone, just a walk with myself, with the moonlight, the universe, signs, um, me being receptive, but it's a meditative walk I do for myself alone that helps me get my day started. And it has, it's, I'm moving my body, I'm watching my posture, I'm watching my, my form and I'm becoming one with myself and having things kind of come to me. And it's amazing when I'm on this walk, the type of things that you brainstorm and come to and come to with just being alone, walking, thinking, and meditating with yourself during this time. It's just the things that I come up with are just like, I have to, afterwards, I have to come home and take notes. (laughs) No, it's slow. It's slowing down your mind. The racy mind, the ruminating mind. Slowing I think it that, down. that's the most important part. And I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because a lot of people um, have a misconception of, you know, the, you, the, you hear the word meditation and, and it kind of even scares people away. But you said something that is that I've said before is it's meditation is actually just bringing your mind back when it wanders. It's bringing it back to that focal point. And, yeah, and absolutely. Go, Awareness is everything. Awareness yes. is everything. And when you can get to that point, again, you can go through, you can do a quick body scan. Right. You know, your shoulders, where am I, why, why am I, you know, keeping my, my shoulders like this and clenching my fists, let go. You know? Yeah. And that's, a, that's something when I was, I had, I had fallen um, one year and I uh, had fallen on my, my hip, which was already had problems with, I went to neurologist and um, she diagnosed me with having sciatica, which brought up a whole nother level of pain that I never experienced before in my life. Being 46, six, having a hard time going up and down my stairs is, is, a, is a really big problem. So she told me what to do in, in the midst of this. And, you know, I, I was taking medications for a little bit, but then I didn't want to, I don't want to do that forever. So I got into some Venetia, uh, Venetia yoga. And that really did help with my whole kind of hip flexors and sciatica. And now I'm always kind of in the realm of tweaking and modifying my physical health because the mental health and the physical health and the spiritual health, the financial health, they all kind of, and the relational health all just kind of go hand in hand. They all kind of feed into each other. These spheres work miraculously with each other so if you can master one sphere i'm a firm believer if you can get down one sphere you can you can master each sphere uh it's just having what's what what can you master the most and then they're transferable skills so you bleed them over to the next sphere and by then you're going to be the best version of success that you could possibly be. And that's the ultimate goal, right? We want to be better than we were yesterday than we are today for tomorrow. So that's, that's really the goal here. Absolutely. Thank you. We, we, Will and I both, I mean, we've said more, you know, this is all, it's all interconnected. We've said it, uh, you know, we say it all the time, all the time. You guys are on, you guys are on on the right track because it's very, very true. Research has shown it. Statistics have shown it. This is not just something that 
a, a therapist fluke is bringing up. This is actual like research oriented stuff that has been looked at academically, not just by Google. Google's not research. Google is other <laughs> Google's other people's opinions. I'm talking about academic literature, journal reviews, um, research books. Um, I'm talking about academia, not not Google, not not um, Siri. <laughs> Um, well, that's that's one that's one thing that I'm still trying to master is really like scanning my body and listening to what my body's telling me. For, all my life, I've been just like muscle through it, muscle through it, muscle through it. And you do that, you end up getting hurt, you end up getting injured, you end up having some sort of problem, and you, that stops you dead in your tracks. So I've stopped that mentality of just muscling through it and really, really listening through it. Right, you can't yeah, just muscle through; you got to listen. Yeah. I think it kind of kind of goes back to what we were we were just talking about in this culture. We wait, we wait, we wait for that. You know, we wait for the knee to blow out. We wait for yeah. the the shoulder and your neck, and the, oh, maybe now I'll go to the doctor or I'll go right. see a chiropractor. Right. I don't know why that is, but you're you know you're right on. Absolutely, yeah. We are a culture that it's very reactive and yes. not prevent not preventative and not proactive, and that's just and and that that's that's the reason why we have flawed systems. They're very reactive systems. And that's what I saw in the, in the, in the, the legal system. That's what we see kind of in the medical system. That's what we see that the reactivity is high when there's a catastrophe. Um, and that's really typically not the best way to learn because now you're emotionally in crisis. And when you're emotionally heightened, there is no logic or rationality that comes into play or problem solving that comes into play. So it's when you're emotionally leveled, diffused, things can kind of get done. Wow. Very well said. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. It's You're been, welcome. it's been an amazing, uh, it's been an amazing hour almost. I can't believe it. Um, we usually know, finish, um, Tim, is there anything else you want to like kind of wrap up before we, before, or do you just want to get into questions? Cause it's yours uh, first. So no, it's okay. I, I guess I just want to ask Dr. Uh, Finner and maybe if she could just, um, you know, if she has anything, you know, left to say, or where, you know, if she can tell our listeners where they can find her, find her book, you know, anything like that. Absolutely. One thing that I I did definitely want to say that I think is important is really just cherishing and harvesting the relationship with self. I think we have these impeccable relationships with other people. The one relationship that we really need to hone in on and really, really harvest and foster is the one with self. And if we can't do that, then we really don't have the ability to do it with anybody else. So I want to just say that the love, the self-love and the self-value and the self-esteem and self-worth is really important just with that relationship with self. And it is an intimate relationship with self. It's not just a surface. It can't be just a surfacey day-to-day dynamic with oneself. It has to be a deep, meaningful love, an unconditional love, regardless of where you are in your journey that that acceptance and that that grace is always there for yourself that you put in place for yourself. I think that's one thing that I definitely want to hone in um, because I think that goes pretty much unturned a lot of times. Um, so people go ahead. Well, I, I'm sorry. You just, you like, that's our last, our last like four months 
has all this is why I'm back in therapy. Like I'm <laughs> like, this is seriously, this is like self-love has been like I realized um that my core belief is that I'm unworthy. So it's like I'm I'm building it back through it. Um, you know, I'm writing letters to my childhood self, I'm doing all these things, and it's like, and there it's and it feels good. And it's Absolutely. it's actually bringing things back from my childhood that I did as a kid that I didn't think were beneficial at the time because I was just playing or having a good time. But I realized that there was a benefit to them, too. Absolutely. And it's it's self-love is so important. And I I think we have a, a new mission at Above Ground Podcast that's all about self-love. So thank you so awesome. much. It's been awesome. It's been You're awesome. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. So people can reach me on my website called it's www.drmichellefinneran.com. Uh, if you just Google Dr. Michelle Finneran, I come up on, on the website and you can see I have a whole website that goes over my services, that go, goes over a way you can contact me, that goes over um, uh, the feel good blog that I have on there that is educational and informational. Cool. And there are also some videos on, on the website that you can actually look as well. And then on Instagram, it's, it's Beck Counseling, v, v as in Victor, ECC Counseling. And then there's Facebook, you just, it's Dr. Michelle Finneran. Um, comes up and then that you can see kind of like my platform and um, the videos that are done and that I put on and the testimonies that I, I, I discuss. So it's informative, it's educational, and that's, that's the purpose of that. So if anyone wants to reach me, I can only do therapeutic intervention in the state of Florida because that's where I'm licensed. But in terms of business collaborations, like we have, like ourselves that we just did recently, it's um, anybody can contact me through Instagram, through uh, my my um, contact form on my website. So we we like well said. We usually end up uh, ending the episode with three questions. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a favorite or a least favorite word? Uh, I can't really. I don't think that because it's the least favorite word. I don't want to really say it. <laughs> But yes, I do. I have a least, I have a least favorite word. It's not, it's not nice. It's not a nice word. And because it's not nice, I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> what letter does funny. it start with? We might be able to figure it out. See, it starts oh, to see. Okay, yeah. that's what I was kind of. That's what I kind of figured. Okay, well, we got yeah, that right. one. Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I like, get it. I, I get it. I don't like. I don't like that word at all. Um, <laughs> and that's why I, I can't even like. I can't even come to say it. It's like so so hard. But I mean. I, that's why it's just not not a, not a good word for me. All right, <laughs> and probably probably for most women. <laughs> yeah, I would I would think so. I would yeah. think so. How about a favorite word? Empowerment. That's my that's a favorite that's a favorite word. I love the word empowerment. I love empowerment. Empowerment's become one of my favorite words lately too, because yeah. it's like that's what we're doing. Like this is empowerment. Yes. This is self empowerment, but it's also it's also a power plant. To, to send out to send out the energy. Um, so the next question is kind of lighthearted. And uh, do you have a favorite preference for animal, cat, dog, or other? Oh my god, a, do a doxy, a dachshund dog is my is my favorite. Is my favorite. It's a dog. It's uh, we have we've had two dachshunds. Me and my husband have two dachshunds, and they're they're the hot dogs. They're the little yep. wiener dogs. But they, oh my god, I love these dogs. And my husband is the one who has introduced me to these types of dogs. But we we have we have a dog. Her she's a dapple dachshund, which she spotted, 
She's like three different colors and her name is Miss Daisy May. And she is absolutely the funniest dog I've ever encountered in my youth and growing up in my life. She is actually, we have her in the middle of our floor and she just is a source of entertainment for us. She's so funny. Oh my gosh. Dog's hysterical. That's um, awesome. We, lo- <laughs> we, we, we love this dog. Yeah. She's so funny. We yeah, can't I asked, tell that you guys love it. Yeah, no, I can't <laughs> tell. I asked, I, I asked that question because I love to see the expression on people's faces when they talk about their pets. Because uh, they're such a source of, of love and such a source of just like grace. Because uh-huh. there's no, because they don't and care. Strength. Yeah, and strength. strength. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. So the last question we have is if you could do anything or if you would like to see anything done for mental health as a whole without any restrictions, what would it be? Oh gosh, this, uh, that's, that's a, that is a loaded, loaded question. I think um, I, I'm talking on a micro level, micro, micro, um, meaning small, there's yep. micro and there's macro. So on a micro level, I just want individuals to really, really understand that the stigma is gone. The, um, the labels are gone. And it's really about like ex- having that self-acceptance and individualistically working on your mental health. There is absolutely no shame in the game. There's absolutely no embarrassment. There has to be a level of just wanting to get this taken care of for yourself so you can be the most productive individual in your life. On a macro level, these systems that we talked about need to be reworked. They need to be reworked and fixed macroly on a a bigger scheme things. Uh, I like to present myself on a more macro level versus an individualistic micro level. I think the more people I'm able to reach or more people that um, people that in the field can reach the better um, on a macro level. So that's really what I'm trying to do in terms of writing and educating and put publishing. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create a forum for a macro level audience that I can reach. And that's my goal. I'm sure you've reached hundreds, but I can definitely tell that you have two new uh, people that you definitely reached today. And that's Will and myself. So thank you Uh, so much, Dr. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Tim and Will for having me. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure to such good energy and good vibe I get from you both. And I just really have enjoyed myself this Sunday morning. Oh, awesome. awesome. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. Um, I can't thank you enough. Cause that's, cause you just kind of hit the nail on the head about micro versus macro. Cause mm-hmm. like the micro level for us is, is our self love, but the mm-hmm. macro, the macro is the community that we're, that Absolutely. we're able to touch. And, and we're fortunate that we're able to, to touch as many people as we can, Cause we touch people all over the place, which is kind of funny now in this day and age that you can t- talk to people on the other side of the planet. Absolutely. Pretty, pretty regularly. Yes. So, so thank you very much for being here. Can you just hang out for one second while we wrap sure. this up? Timmy, sure. Timmy, another good one, man. I, it's wow. 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 Yeah. I so know. much formal and informal supports and services. That's what I think we provided here. And I, I think yeah. Dr. Michelle did not let us down for that one, for sure. Not at so, all. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, don't forget to check us on the socials and follow us, um, like us, you know, hit the notifications, all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to the show at PayPal. I include all the all the links in the show notes. All of Dr. Michelle's links will be in the show notes also. So until next week, 
be well, be safe, and be strong, and be <laughs> above. above.